According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We've been in primarily Mark, Mark 5 and Luke 8. We'll go ahead and use Matthew for our conclusion to this here this morning and we'll move on. I want to glean some principles out of this before we move on to episode 31. I've got 31 and 32 actually complete and ready to go, um, but I left my notes up there. I'm really starting to hate not living next door to the church, so that's uh, something else. That Alzheimer's has hit me real bad. All right, Matthew chapter 9. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. Assure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word this morning, and we thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together, to study, to be edified by the ministry of your word as it Father, as it uh, does much more than any academic study ever could do, Father, this is not just gnosis or knowledge that we are accumulating into our mind, but it's the the living and abiding Word of God that we are hiding within our heart. We thank you that as we have hidden your Word in our heart, we have uh, a uh, protection versus the the sin struggles that we wrestle with on a daily basis. And, uh, Father, we have the opportunity for that Word to dwell richly and uh, an opportunity for that Word to spring forth and bear much fruit. We ask that it would bear much fruit in accordance with your plan, accordance with your design for every test that you call for us to apply. Now, Father, set aside distractions and give us concentration. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The last little bit of this, as we have gone through it, I'm just going to rapidly fire through the slideshow here. Growing crowds and uh, information there that kept him from uh, reaching certain places and kind of limited his movement, so to speak. And yet ministry would seek him out, as is in the case of of Jairus here. On the way to Jairus' house is when he performed another miracle without even realizing it. And I hope we're dwelling on those things and praying over them and considering that the places that we go to while we're on the way may also be work assignments or other work assignments on the way. We think about, uh, you know, my teaching schedule and we've got assignments on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night. But what about other things along the way? Are those not also work assignments? Are we not called to be ready to anyone who might ask and and other things that may take place? And so uh, the bulk of, of ministry takes place between pulpit sessions, as it were, in terms of the shepherding that takes place. Uh, as far as the shepherd teacher goes, of course, this is our primary teaching venue, but there is a whole lot of shepherding that takes place in between the teaching opportunities. And so we want to be able to learn to start identifying those and then also to be relaxed about it when we don't even know that it's taking place. The Lord was not aware of the miracle. She reached out and appropriated that power um, by faith, and that's the nature of it. When God has made the power available, when he has made prayer as a as a vehicle by which we can appropriate his power, as a vehicle by which we can appropriate his provision and other circumstances, if he's made it available and provided a means for us to access it, then we can certainly do so and we can do so at any time. 
I think it's important for us to realize, according to Philippians 2, that it is the Father who is at work within us, both to will, that's the mental attitude, and to do, that's the activity of his good pleasures, the Father who's doing that particular work. The woman left in peace, but the house was full of chaos, and we looked at the flute players and the noisy disorder and uh, the things involved there. The last bit was the word study with Talitha Kum and uh, the Greek from which that is translated. Now, as I read here in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 23, when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd and the noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep, and they began laughing at him. See, there's work to be done. Not only is there a miracle to be accomplished, but then there's teaching that will take place following the miracle, and the teaching isn't going to happen with the crowd, with the chaos and all the rest. If You, you can imagine, if they're out of control here, how uh, berserk are they going to be Uh, if they witnessed a miracle before their eyes. When the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the news spread throughout all that land. Now, the news spreading in verse 26 is interesting because he didn't want it to spread. We think news spreading is a good idea. We think that word getting out is great. When we talk about the outreach that we can have and the exposure that we can have and how can we get word out how can the news spread uh throughout austin for example that there's teaching to be found that there's line upon line precept upon precept teaching and so what can we do in terms of radio ads or newspaper ads or websites or things like that so that news can spread we think well that's a good thing isn't it well look over to both mark and luke let's go to mark 5 and you'll see that uh, news had spread but It wasn't exactly because he wanted it to spread. And uh, it says in verse 43 of Mark 5, he gave them strict orders. But it's one thing to give orders. (laughs) What strict orders? What are strict orders? Well, they're more severe than orders. They're orders with consequences. They're orders that make it very clear that, that he will be very displeased if his orders are not followed. So he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. That no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat, whatever the case. I mean, can you imagine what what does it take out of a body to be dead and then uh, to have that uh, soul uh, forced back to the body and so forth to reanimate the body with the uh, the soul's reinjection? And, and that, that, by the way, also assumes that the soul has actually departed. It may be that for the purpose of this miracle, the soul was simply put into a dormant sleeping state uh, similar to death. It, we're not exactly sure how the mechanics of these processes work in the six places where we have uh, physical resuscitation. In any event, uh, he strict orders. Let's not promote this. Let's not promote this miracle. Likewise, in Luke, the language is consistent with uh, the idea that he did not want this to be published. Luke chapter 8. We had the same thing on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where he, um, well, we're going to see this repeated on a number of occasions where he wants the the uh, miracle kept hush-hush and yet it just gets magnified more and more. Uh, at the end of Luke chapter 8, we're told, uh, see, he says, child arise and her spirit returned. And she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. 
he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. But they spread the news anyway. So how does this work? And this is the last point of study we want to glean out of this. Point six. This miracle was not to be published. But it was. This miracle was not to be published. But it was. Both in the Mark and Luke record, he gave those orders not to spread the news around of this resurrection. But it was. We read that in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 26, that the word had spread. So what's the big deal about that? Why is that significant? What was the Lord's purpose in keeping these things quiet? Well, first of all, it's not unusual. We've seen it before. We'll see it again in the process of our, through the, uh, not through the Bible, but our uh, Life of Christ series. Uh, just using Mark as one gospel, for instance, uh, Mark 143, 3.12, 5.43, 7.36. So you can kind of see this is the third out of four different uh, occasions there in Mark where this would take place. Mark 143, 3.12, 5.43, and 7.36. You can find parallel to this in, Mar- in Matthew and Luke, but I thought simply one gospel, for instance, would be sufficient. Um, here's a man with uh, leprosy in uh, Mark 1. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. There's nothing wrong with having compassion. And we studied that at the time. The splanchnon, the kidneys, the emotional response. We're not called to be uh, emotion-free Vulcan-type robots in the Christian way of life. We can have compassion. We want our compassion, of course, to be uh, molded by doctrinal teaching. We want to be able to have the Word of God frame how our uh, what forms our compassion and how our compassion is expressed. But the last thing we want to do is kind of put a damper on anything and, and act like we have no compassion whatsoever. If we're cold and heartless, then, uh, you know... The only thing you can conclude from that is that you're cold and heartless. What kind of kind of Christian way of life is that? Over in Mark 3 and verse 12, we have um, the uh, healing on the Sabbath that takes place there. And um, it's interesting. Notice the crowds. Verse 9, we're told, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. He has his escape route already planned out, as it were. It's like, you know, uh, different uh, celebrities and different people that have a hard time in their movement because of all the popularity and the crowds, and so they get their staff on hand, and the, the, the car is waiting, and they're usually ushered out a, a side door, a back door, or through the kitchen, or somewhere unexpected where they can be, uh, where they can be uh, hustled away without... Uh, the crowd's getting to them. The Lord had to deal with that. Notice uh, it says he had healed many in verse 10 with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. See, and that was the thinking behind that lady on the way to Jairus' house. She thought, well, all I have to do is just simply touch his garment and I'm going to be healed. And, and she was right. She touched his garments and she was healed. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So there was an urgency uh, in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3. And I think we can understand it in chapter 3. Who wants, who wants the demonic witness anyway? Who wants the demons uh, testifying to who he is? You, you hopefully would want believers with doctrine testifying to who he is. But in chapter 5, he doesn't want these, the parents... 
here to uh, to celebrate or to spread the news of the uh, the resurrection or the resuscitation of their daughter. And then the last one we'll look at is in chapter seven and verse thirty six. And um, here he's uh, out of Galilee, actually. It says in verse 31, uh, through the regions of Tyre, uh, through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. Decapolis is on the other side, on the eastern shore. And uh, they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And there's different things here. And here he, uh, in verse 33, does the spitting routine put uh, his fingers into his ears, and after uh, spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, and looking to the heavens, he, with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephphathah, that is, be open. And his ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. So here's the, here's the spitting mechanism. Elsewhere, he makes mud and applies mud to the eyes and so forth. Jesus did so many different uh, methods and devices and whatnot, it's, it's, I, I almost laugh over it, because today... In our day and age, we would have, uh, you know, 15 different denominations would have sprung up based upon the method involved in the, you know. I mean, it's bad enough as it is with we got some sprinklers and some pourers and some dunkers. We've got all the different baptism methods that are out there now. You can imagine we would have ended up with, you know, a, a mud denomination and a spit denomination and a poke your finger in the ear denomination and all kinds of things. Anyway, I, I think... It's it's an interesting, and I don't have any answer. I don't know why he did so many different things like that. And maybe he was just having fun with different people. But it says in verse 36 again, he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, notice, the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. So was this reverse psychology on his part? Was he... You know, knowing human nature, was he saying, uh, you know, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, knowing that the more he urge that then the more the word would spread is he a crafty salesman kind of guy no i don't believe so i believe the idea is is that he was in fulfillment of isaiah 42 that he was choosing to not be a self-promoter and i give this under point b and we'll spend the rest of our morning on the idea of promotion or self-promotion and the uh, patterns of pride that we can stumble in but point B, the Lord intended to minister with gentleness and humility and not be a self-promoter. And we can, we can relate Matthew 12:19 over to Isaiah 42:2, and we can see the principles here. And that's why, I believe, I'm convinced, why the Lord would tell people, don't, uh, don't spread these around. Don't tell these stories. You know... For for the Lord's thinking, what was the what was the real issue anyway? Was it the miracle or was it the teaching? <laughs> now, if people want to talk about the teaching, you know, come hear this teacher, come get the word of God, and so forth. Yeah, talk about the teaching all you want, but the miracles is that what we're here to celebrate? Is that is that what we should be promoting? You know, come follow this guy, and he'll multiply loaves and fishes. He'll feed you and heal whatever sickness you have. In Matthew twelve nineteen, we read. The uh, I'll have to back up before verse 19. Verse 19 may not be the best verse anyway. Let's back up to verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. 
Many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So here we have not just a pastor's opinion, we got the scripture's opinion. Why was he keeping people silent? Why was he telling people to keep things hush-hush at this point? Well, Matthew twelve seventeen should be 17 instead of 19, tells us that we have a purpose clause, not, not exactly a purpose clause, but we have a, a fulfillment of purpose here. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So in other words, the warning in verse 16 was for scripture fulfillment. So once we get to that concept, we're past the point of, of opinion because the Holy Spirit inspired it here in the Gospel of Matthew. To fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, behold, my servant whom I have chosen. All the talk and everything you ever want to study about election and sovereignty and all the doctrines that go with it are great. They're wonderful, but you better start with Jesus Christ because he is the chosen one. And when we talk about church age believers and are being chosen, yes, we are. Amen. Chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world and so forth. Anyway, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, the agapetos. We've got a ton of stuff coming up on agape love, and you better believe agapetos is going to be a part of that. My beloved one, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. There's the River Jordan baptism incident with the uh, Holy Spirit descending as a dove. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And we've seen a number of those occasions already. There are more coming up. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads just justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So we've got a quotation there going down through verse 21 that's going to be consistent with Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah 42. And it'll be very consistent here. The coastlands will wait expectantly for his law is uh, how the Hebrew text ends with verse 4. If I can put these up side by side, then we can kind of see the distinctions. Um, I know what we'll do. We'll do this. We'll go to Matthew 12 and verse 17. And then we'll open up another window. Now, if I've done this right, huh. We can just put them up here left and right. How's that look? Oftentimes when you're dealing with Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, it does not come across straight word for word. It comes across as a paraphrase. It comes across oftentimes the New Testament authors will be reciting from the Greek. They'll be citing the Septuagint as opposed to the uh, Hebrew text. So behold my servant whom I have chosen. Isaiah 42.1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And so we have a quotation in Matthew that's closer to the Septuagint than it is to the, to the Hebrew text, but we're fine with that. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, we, we recognize that 
in Old Testament prophecies, we get this blend between First Advent and Second Advent, and we have to sift them out now, and we can do so because of where we are in between the two Advents. Are we comfortable with that? Does it bother us that we have uh, the, the blending of First Advent and Second Advent in the Old Testament? I hope it doesn't. I hope we can get over that. Because remember, the idea that there were two separate times was, was not revealed. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. Now, I think this applies, first of all, to his torture and his abuse and the, the beatings that he took and how he silently, you know, like it says in Isaiah 53, just 11 chapters from here, he, he uh, humbles himself, he goes to the cross and so forth. But I think it's more than that. Beyond the, the humbly accepting the, the mistreatment, I think is the quietness with which he went about his teaching ministry for three and a half years. He... Uh, nor make his voice heard in the street. If you think about how they uh, promoted their ministries in, in the ancient world, you'd send a, a crier, you'd send a, a herald, a, a karux, a preacher. What we get today is where we get preacher. And they would walk through the streets and announce, you know, this great speaker was going to be at a certain place at a certain time and come hear him. And, and they'd, they'd send the, the people walking all throughout the city, all throughout the day, so that at sunset uh, you have great crowds gathering together at a particular place to hear somebody real famous. Lord didn't do any of that. Didn't do any of that. A bruised reed, and there you get more of the mistreatment. He will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, of course, he does so positionally and, and uh, tactically at the cross, and he will do so experientially uh, in the kingdom uh, when he comes to the second advent and establishes the millennial kingdom. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And everybody that's today dreaming about perfect government on the earth, well, they're not going to get it. Not until he comes. <laughs> that's when they'll see perfect government. And they'll like it at first, and then a thousand years later, they're going to march for his removal. And they're going to demand uh, the release of Satan and all the rest at the end of the millennial kingdom. All right. So that wraps that up. The Lord intended to minister with gentleness and humility and not be a self-promoter. Now I'm going to follow up with another slideshow here this morning. And this is one that we did three years ago in 1 Corinthians because I think it ties in real well here on superiority. Remember this one? We tackled this in January of 04. Maybe you don't remember it. There's a lot of principles we want to glean here out of. We don't do a lot of these. In fact, in our Life of Christ series, we've not really broken for some uh, doctrinal studies. We've kind of kept things in the, the gospel text itself. But given that this ties in so well, and given that my uh, notes for episode 31 are back at the office... Let's, uh, let's run through these here this morning. This came out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 is where we developed it. Um, remember, the church at Corinth had all these schisms going on. And uh, they were divided into basically into four camps, followers of Paul, followers of Cephas, followers of Apollos, and followers of Jesus. And, uh, but they were all very divisive against one another. And so... 
he says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And he says, we're just simply stewards. We're here to benefit you, to edify you, and so forth. And he's got principles there in verses 1 through 5 that relate to that humility. And then he says in verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, but uh, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. We want to make sure that we have the, the proper humility orientation in all that we do. Now, Christ was the example for this. And even raising people back from the dead and restoring them to physical life, he was not going to use that as a basis for promotion. Because he was here to serve the Father. He was here to accomplish the Father's work, to deliver the Father's message, to glorify the Father. And uh, was not a self promoter and then i like uh what verse 7 says as a follow-up to uh no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other for who regards you as superior you know besides yourself if you're the only one without opinion then uh you know do you have a second opinion on that that will validate your superiority and what do you have that you did not receive the answer to that is nothing everything you have you you received it by grace Everything that you are, you are by grace. Everything that you do, you do by grace. So there's no superiority at all. There's no room for boasting anywhere. And if you did receive it, first class condition, and you did, why do you boast as if you had not received it? See, when you have this humility orientation, it's a defense against the, the, the pride and the boasting and the things that can take place there. So I'll go through some of the vocabulary and the introduction that we did way back in that study. And if you want to go get this, you can get this. There's four or five MP3 files on the website back in the chapter 4 portion of 1 Corinthians. The verb fusiao is one that you're going to be uh, familiar with. It'll be coming up again in chapter 13. You'll notice uh, it's right there in chapter 13 and verse 4. It's also in 1 Corinthians 8.1. It's the verb for puffing up. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And one of the things that we'll see as a characteristic of love is love does not brag. Love does not brag. When we study love here um, over the next several weeks, this is an activity that's incompatible with love. If you find your head, and, and fusa is almost uh, onomatopoetic in, in the way that you just, it sounds like it is. Fusa, fusa, you know, you're breathing out, and it's the idea that you're filling bellows, you're stoking the fire, or you're, um, maybe you yourself are a pair of bellows, and you're full of hot air. We have similar expressions in the English, and your head just gets so puffed up. See, anyway, that's the mentality of it there. So we'll have uh, some of that vocabulary in our love study that we're approaching. Loss of, uh, this was another introductory point, loss of grace orientation resulted in increased knowledge without love, and it produced arrogance. And by the time we get to chapter 8, that becomes pretty clear. These guys were full of uh, full of pride uh, because of their increased knowledge, but they didn't have any love, and the result of that is arrogance. Now, I want to give you some principles. We've got a dozen of these. I don't know how many we'll get to. We've got a half hour here. But principles of pride. This is what the Lord was working against. This is what the Lord was uh, hoping to prevent by not uh, having these accounts published in extra. Can you imagine? He's been in the ministry for a couple of years. That's a snare. 
There's nothing like being in the ministry for a couple of years to think, hey, I'm getting the hang of this. I got it going on. Things are growing. Things are happening. You know? Or being in the ministry 10 years thinking, hey, got the hang of this. This is easy. So you can meet a guy that's been in the ministry 50 years. You go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm still a rookie. What am I doing? All right? Now, you think the Lord's concerned about this? You realize if he stumbles here into some kind of a pride mentality, is he eligible to go to the cross? So who cares what the last two years or three years of ministry was? Two years. Two and a half, I guess, at this point. We're coming up on another Passover not too long from now. He's going to feed the 5,000 one year out from his crucifixion. Um, So we're approaching that. He's been in the ministry two and a half years. Could be a danger there. All right. Principles of pride. First of all, from Proverbs 6. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins. You realize seven deadly sins is not biblical. There's some commercials out right now that are highlighting the seven deadly sins. It came from a medieval Catholic text. It came from, uh, I mean, they're all seven of them, are, you can define them biblically as wrong. But in Proverbs 6, we have the sins which God particularly hates. There are six things which the Lord hates. Believe it or not, in our study coming up on love, one of the things we're going to have to reference is hate. Hate is actually a love application. Hatred is the application of love to the antithesis of the object of that love. It's quite remarkable. We live in a day, of course, where we have hate crimes and hate speech and hate thought and all this other stuff, and hate's a dirty word. Well, God uses it, and it's a sanctified application. So there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him, the first one of which, haughty eyes, and then a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, it goes on seven different things, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So apply that to a local church context, and you'll see all kinds of things in here that can be snares for, uh, for us in a local church. Sins that the Lord hates and are described as abominations leading the believer rapidly to the sin and the death. We talk about what will destroy a ministry faster than anything. What will destroy a marriage faster than anything or anything. It's this aspect here on pride. Do I have some points on this? Maybe? No, no. No some points. There's 12 of these, and I don't think any of them have some points. All right, so we have pride. If you want to list all seven of them, you can do so. Uh, A lying tongue. And it's remarkable. In all of these, we find these are descriptions of who? Satan, that's right. What was motivating him when he launched into his five I wills? And what were those five I wills? All five of them were lies. None of them came true. (laughs) Maybe he didn't intend for them to be lies. He believed he was going to accomplish them all. But he's a liar and the father of lies. Uh, hands that shed innocent blood. He was a murderer from the beginning. And Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. A heart that devises wicked plans. Any plan and program that's contrary to the Father's plan and program, by definition, is wicked, isn't it? Come up with your own program. Come up with your own routine. If you think that uh, you know you know better than God does about whatever it is. Externally, it might be a nice thing. You might be feeding the homeless or doing some kind of good works or some kind of charity function and whatnot, but it's contrary to God's plan, motivated by your own pride. 
called here a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. You know, that readiness that's there, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not, we all struggle. We all have temptation. We all battle it. And, and, uh, but what you want to do is you want to, you want to go kicking and screaming, kind of dragged into it and not really wanting to do it. This guy wants to do it. This guy sees it and he's off to the races. He's running after it. That's how eager he is for pursuing those things. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. Interestingly, that's, uh, in a, there's two here that reference lying. The lying tongue and the false witness. And then uh, one who spreads strife among the br- uh, brothers. One of the titles for the devil himself is the slanderer. So we have the accuser and the slanderer. Anyway, all seven of these are titles for the adversary. Secondly, the fear of the Lord is the preemptive antidote to pride. And we get that out of Proverbs 8 and verse 13. And this is why the Lord was able to maintain humility, maintaining that fear, that godly reverence for his father throughout his earthly ministry. We think about the uh, principles here of wisdom that come in Proverbs. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And uh, here is wisdom personified. Now, wisdom personified, if you want to think of it as such, is Christ himself. In the Gospel of John, he's called the Logos. He's called the Word. Here in Proverbs, he's called wisdom. Chachma is the Hebrew. Sophia is Greek. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. So here's our preemptive antidote to pride. We can get our children grounded in the Word of God, grounded in wisdom. It's, a, it's going to go a long way to promoting the, uh, the uh, mental attitude of humility, a, a pattern of thinking to sustain them throughout their lives. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. We can claim those things as promises. Of course, I have parents sometimes ask me, um, what about that gap in between the child and when he is old, <laughs> right? I train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What about those years in between? And uh, when they're kind of drifting and turning flaky and doing some different things. Well, that's when you pray for them, and you learn a whole lot about praying for them at that stage. Because I'm hoping that you're going to learn a lot about praying for them at that stage. And I expect uh, that when my turn comes to get there, that you're going to come alongside me. And uh, remind me of the lessons that you've learned in the process of all this. All right. So we have this preemptive antidote. There's so much here in chapter 8, but I think we'll let that go for this morning. Isaiah 14, we mentioned a little bit ago. Satan's fall was caused by pride. We can call him the father of pride. His followers are his unholy children. Isaiah 14, that's why they're called a brood of vipers. That's why the ba- John the Baptist nailed them appropriately. Christ himself calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, the Lord in John 8 said, you have your father, the devil. He said, I'm serving my father. You're serving your father. They didn't like being called that. They said, uh, you know, it's like today when you call somebody's mother a name or whatever. You know, it's insulting. And they said, uh, when he said, you're of your father, the devil, and uh, I'm doing the things that please my father, you're doing the things that please your father. Oh, that made him mad. They even uh, dug up some dirt from his parents' generation and accused, uh, you know, 
They accused him of being born out of wedlock and, and whatnot. They, they did the math and they figured out from the time of the engagement to the time of the marriage to the time of the birth when uh, he came into the world, it was uh, sooner than it was supposed to be. Right? We understand that. We understand also that there was no uh, uh, premarital sex going on. And she, was, she was a virgin. And, uh, you know, Joseph figured it out, and the angel told him, and he accepted it by faith and married her, and they went, and here comes the Christ. Well, 30 years later, they, they throw that in his face in John chapter 8. They say, well, we were not born of fornication. And they're throwing that at him 30 years later. You wonder, how long do these minions of, of uh, the, the slanderer, how long do they file these things away? Forever. They never let it go. They can't let it go. So in Isaiah 14, the passage normally starts off in verse 12, but if I back up to verse 11, I get to read about maggots. Um, there's some good things in the earlier verses. Uh, but Sheol's excited. This is a massive passage here on, on wrath. Uh, it's a taunt, actually, in verse 4, against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. And Jehovah gets the last laugh. He gets the victory. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. And then goes on to describe this. Now, in the first 11 verses is one thing with reference to the king of Babylon. And there's a historical application of this in the Old Testament. There's an eschatological fulfillment of this in Antichrist, in the tribulation, because Babylon is featured in the end times. And we've got a whole lot coming up on Babylon in uh, Revelation. But then we have uh, verses 12 and following that clearly shift to the angelic realm. How you have fallen from heaven, uh, Halel ben Shachar, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. In your Latin, you ended up with Lucifer in there. And that's where we, because of the King James, we've had Lucifer all this time. O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. All five of these are prideful statements. It's all about what I'm going to do. It's all about me, 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 me. And Satan's uh, pride of self-promotion. You've said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. See, Satan had a role. He was an exalted angel, the most wise, the most beautiful, and, and entrusted with an amazing position on the angelic earth. He had that position on the angelic temple. He had sanctuaries he was in charge of. But he didn't have a position in the heavens. And there were cherubim in the heavens that he viewed as being uh, above him, and he was resented that. He was jealous of that. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, he was not content with what he had been provided. Nevertheless, he will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Remember, he who exalts himself will be brought low. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You will be exalted at the proper time. Those who see it, you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man or is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness that's the earth was formless and void and darkness brooded over the surface of the deep and overthrew its cities who did not allow his prisoners to go home. All right, there's more on that, but we'll let that go. The uh, parallel to Isaiah 14 is Ezekiel 28. And if you want the verses on that, um, 
We'll grab those here real quickly. Because he had a position and he had, we're told where he was. He was in Eden, the garden of God. Just as Adam's earth had an Eden, the new earth will have an Eden. The tree of life is going to be planted on the new earth when the new heavens and new earth are created. Eschatological uh, studies we have coming up. Uh, there's no reason to, underst- to have a problem with Eden being planted on the angelic earth. You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone. Oh, let me back up verse 12. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's the description of Halal ben Shachar before he falls. You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. There's not an animal on earth that has this. You've got birds with feathers. Other animals have fur, scales, claws. Look at what the dragon had. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day you were created. They were prepared. Remember, the angels are created beings. They were not born. They were created. This cannot be speaking to a human being. The only human being created was Adam. Um, And uh, this is not the description. This is not a rebuke against Adam. This is a rebuke against uh, Satan. You were the anointed cherub, the Christ cherub who covers. He was, this is Messiah. This is the Mashiach cherub, the Christ cherub, the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you. His work was to be in Eden, the garden of God, with the sanctuaries and all the things that are described here. And I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, but he didn't like it. He wanted to be in the heavenly realm where the Father's throne was and be above those angels that were there. He thought his position was inferior, but he was where the Father wanted him because he was where the Father put him, and he didn't like it. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you by the abundance of your trade. See, he was the first money changer. Long before the Pharisees and those guys ever got a hold of that earthly temple. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Notice verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So everything that was described of Solomon failing his prosperity testing long before that was the failure of Hillel ben Shachar, that is Satan, before his fall. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. There's your temple. The angelic temple. The, uh, by the way, when you look at the stones there in verse 13 for the dragon, the, the parallel to the high priest's uh, breastplate is, is unmistakable. He was the high priest. The Messiah cherub of the angelic temple on the holy mountain of God. And yet he, uh, by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, we're told in verse 18. The first of the money changers. See, that's why I'm not surprised at all when Christ walked into the temple there and he saw all the money changing going on and he went berserk. 
grabbed their whip and started throwing tables over and driving them out and overturning all kinds of things. Can you imagine? Because he'd seen it before. Well, Satan's fall was caused by pride. Pride has its source in Satan and severely perverts the believer's walk into a pursuit of jealousy and selfish ambition. James 3, this is why it says, let not many of you become teachers. Pride will destroy your ministry. Whether you're a pastor, you're an evangelist, you're a teacher. The moment you uh, succumb to pride, you're in trouble. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Down to verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant so as to lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. That's why the ministry is not a competition. That's why, you know, I hear great things about what Stan Newton's doing in North Carolina. I'm excited. I'm thankful for that. I pray about that. Great. I'm happy. The last thing I want to do is get all grumbling and mumbling and sad saying, well, you know, how, how come Stan gets that? You know, how come, how come I don't get that? And, and what, why, don't, why don't we have a larger parking lot and all the rest? So far as that goes. You know, North Carolina, it's remarkable. The city government actually works for you and helps you. Oh, you need, you need more parking? Here. You know, as opposed to other governments that churches are last on their list unless we're the first metropolitan, homosexual, tree-hugging, uh, liberal kind of druid church, maybe. Then, then the city council might be on our side. All right, so there's pride. It'll destroy your ministry. Fifthly, a prideful heart convinces itself that it can get away with anything and everything. A prideful heart convinces itself that it can get away with anything and everything. You know, people who know better, pride knocks them down. They've had the teaching, they know what they're doing is wrong, but they start getting this idea that, oh, well, you know, just... It doesn't apply to me. Sure it does. It's only pride that tells you it doesn't. Psalm 10, 2 through 6 and verse 11. You know, how many pastors, you know, they've got all this sin going on and lifestyles and things. They've got a, a mistress stashed away in a house somewhere. and You think... How do you how do you pastor? How do you teach the Bible on Sunday and and uh, you know and then you got your mistress stashed away somewhere and and, and you, or you got these other sins going on and other things. That's not to say that you know everybody sins. Pastors all sin, but the idea that you can create this um, this uh, schizophrenic double life or something and you're going to get away with that? How do you justify that? How do you validate that? Well, the amazing thing is is pride is an insanity. And pride will twist things around and pride will allow you to think that, yeah, it's all right, I'm entitled. Or it's not so bad. Or, you know, Christ died for it anyway, so it's forgiven, I confessed it. 
And, uh, you know, if you confess ahead of time, can you go ahead and do the sin? Well, confession doesn't work like that. As a matter of fact, it's not confession if you intend to do it again. So uh, Psalm 10, verse 2 says, um, In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. The Lord's got a great way of doing that. For the wicked boast of his heart's uh, desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Yeah, pride says, yeah, I'm okay, I'll get away with this. His ways prosper at all times, your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them, and he says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. And so they just go along in their pride thinking they've got it all made. There's no consequences. They can get away with anything because there is no God. Or he's so far away, he's not paying attention. In verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. It's only the insanity of pride that causes believers to think that you're going to get away with it. Scripture says... Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. As a man sows, so also shall he reap. The sixth area of pride. <laughs> it gets away with nothing. Proverbs 16. You might think you do, but you don't. Pride gets away with nothing. Proverbs 16. How many times does David cry out, you know, how long, O Lord? Or Job cries out, why, why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why do they seem to be getting away with things? Why do they seem to have it made? Well, it only seems that way to you because you're struggling with pride at the moment. <laughs> if you only knew the blackness of their soul and how miserable they are, how hard they're working to put on that good front to make people think that they've got it made. Proverbs 16. Verse 5 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. There's probably no stronger way that they could have said that in terms of the, uh, the Hebrew text in that poem. Verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's going to happen. Verse 19, it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. We get away with nothing. Pride will allow us to get away with nothing. Point G, pride is specifically identified by God as sinful and worldly. Proverbs 21, verse 4 and 24. Pride is specifically identified by God as sinful and worldly. says in verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You know, it can be useful if it's channeled. If it's, uh, if it's directed, it can be very powerful. My family, uh, I took my family, we toured the Grand Coulee Dam several years ago. And you think of the, the power that can be generated as water is focused through the turbines and the things all spin and here comes the electricity like magic. Okay? I'm not mechanical, but I saw it work. <laughs> but if the water is not channeled, or it's channeled the wrong direction, or it's uncontrolled, and think how destructive water can be. 
when it goes where it's not supposed to be, <laughs> where it's not designed to be. So the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So many principles out of this. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. The Pharisees could never figure this out. They thought the external religion was enough. If you just follow the rules, play the religious game, you're okay. No, it's the internal heart attitude. That's what's rewarded. Not the the externals. It's not uh, you don't get a gold star every time you show up in Bible class and the, the, the attendance records give you uh, uh, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. What was your attitude for getting here? Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. So there's a definition there of uh, what is sinful and what is worldly, and pride is a big part of that. Down to verse 24. I'm going to skip over verse 9, even though it's been a favorite of mine for a long time now. Uh, verse 24. Proud. All right. Somebody, somebody's eyes went across verse 9. Verse 24. But notice, this is important. You've got to guard your soul and, and you're guarding your mouth in verse 23. But notice these names in verse 24. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names. Who acts, whose names? The one who acts with insolent pride. He actually, you become named by that behavior. This, that's why this is such a snare. You get the way of thinking, the behavior forms from a way of thinking, becomes a way of thinking, becomes a lifestyle, and gives you a reputation. You have that name. See, and that's hard. I mean, if you get a reputation for whatever and you become known for a particular behavior or a particular uh, activity, how hard is it to overcome that, to get rid of that, that, uh, that reputation? And so you see the, the nature of this, uh, how pride can become uh, a, a naming event. These last ones here. The believer should understand that all promotion comes from God, not from his own inherent abilities. All promotion comes from God and not from his own inherent abilities. And I think this, well, we'll conclude with this one. There's more, but because this is the, the, the core of Jesus Christ and his desire to not be a self-promoter. His desire to not have people just going all over the land telling all these great miracles he's doing. Promotion comes from the Father. And he understands that he's not going to be promoted to the throne of David until he's humbled to the cross. So Psalm 75 will be our last text this morning. Psalm 75, 4 through 7. In the... Um, Well, let's see here. I guess I'll read the whole the whole thing. Um, it's a psalm of, a, of uh, Asaph. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. All right, so that introduces it. Then verse 4. I said to the boastful, do not boast. Notice the boastful has a name. They're the boastful. 
I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. Now again, this could be a personal description of Satan. This could be Yahweh's words to Satan himself. This might even be the response to Isaiah 14. This might even be the very words that Yahweh had for Satan after his five I wills. And I said to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn, do not lift up your horn on a high, do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. That's his business, not ours. God's the one that promotes. See, and John the Baptist understood this when his disciples were all grumbly upset. They were all, remember that in John 3, they said, you know, teacher, that, that guy you were telling us about, he's, crowds are going over there to him. And we're kind of getting smaller around here. John was happy about that. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. A man can receive nothing unless it has been granted to him from above. See, John the Baptist had a marvelous understanding and appreciation here of Psalm 75. Not from the east nor the west nor from the desert comes exaltation. In other words, it's not coming from uh, earthly resources. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. All promotion comes from him. Christ understood that. That's why he didn't want demons going out proclaiming his name. He didn't want human beings going out and celebrating the miracles to try to build a false promotion for himself. It gets really dangerous after he multiplies the loaves and fishes. They get this, this crowd of 5,000 there on that mountain and they're, they're ready to make him king. What better king? He's the best king in the universe. Why? Because he can give us food every day. A bunch of lazy bums. You know? You don't need to work anymore. If the government just gives you all your food, what do you do? Hey, there's a concept. So they said, let's just make him king. And we'll get on this deal. He'll multiply loaves and fishes every day, feed the whole country, and isn't this great? Now, he, he will sit on the Davidic throne, but it will only be when the Father puts him on that throne. And not before. And as he understands it, the cross has to precede it anyway. All right, there's more, but we're out of time. Those are the principles on pride that I think uh, are a good reminder for us. They were the essence of his motivation in keeping the raising of Jairus' daughter secret. We will return next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. And we will go through both ex- uh, uh, episode 31 and 32 Uh, The healing of two blind men and the casting out of a demon from a moot demoniac. I used to pronounce it mute all the time. But uh, a brother in Christ who's now with the Lord I love very dearly, he was very insistent that the proper pronunciation is moot. And so for his sake and to honor his memory, I have since 1987 now, I have endeavored to pronounce it moot no matter who laughs at me that's kind of what i'm stuck with let's pray father thank you for today thank you for this class and what you prepared for the edification of your children we thank you for this series we thank you for believers that are committed to studying here a little there a little line upon line precept upon precept we thank you for this new year and the studies you've prepared the things we have coming up in revelation the uh, studies on love that we have coming up here in 1 Corinthians 13. 
Father, the the ongoing Hebrew class, the brand new uh, Greek class getting started, and so many things, Father. You're, You're blessing our ministry abundantly. We thank you for that. We pray for continued diligence, continued faithfulness, and uh, most of all, Father, uh, prevent us from getting uh, full of ourselves or fat-headed over anything that takes place around here, because all that's done is not us, it's you through us, and, and all that testifies to is how omnipotent you really are to uh, be able to make use of such uh, awful, awful tools that you make use of. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.